Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. David French of National Review is in for Jim Garrity today. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives. And all of it is brought to you by Quip Electric Toothbrushes, starting now at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you can get your first refill pack of brushes for free. Getquip.com slash martini. Much more on that in just a moment. But, David, we start with our good martini. And it actually involves North Korea. So... Circle this day on the calendar. This doesn't happen too often. But in the pages of the New York Times, on the opinion page, and it's a column by Nicholas Eberstadt of the American Enterprise Institute, the title is Kim Jong-un's Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Year. The subhead for perhaps the first time, America seems to be outmaneuvering Team North Korea. And it starts with talking about how it was actually a PR disaster for Kim Jong-un to look like he was scurrying to the demilitarized zone earlier this year when uh, President Trump made the 11th hour offer over Twitter to do so, uh, basically because he was desperate to get a deal after things didn't work out at Hanoi because he was counting on that. And then he was very flustered when Trump walked away from that at Hanoi. He didn't get sanctions relief at the DMZ either. And then Eberstadt also says this, uh, the North Korean economy is hurting. Last month, South Korea's state-funded trade and investment promotion agency reported that merchandise imports into North Korea fell by nearly a third between 2017 and 2018. South Korea's central bank reckons that North Korea's gross domestic product last year suffered its worst drop since the Great Famine of the 1990s. And earlier this year, the U.N. warned that a drought and crop shortfall were exposing as many as 10 million North Koreans, or about 40 percent of the country's population, to severe food shortages. And so... Eberstadt saying that basically North Korea needs an actual deal with the U.S. by the end of this year. It doesn't necessarily look like it's going to get one, at least on the terms it likes. And that's because the sanctions are are doing the job. So we don't necessarily like Trump's buddy-buddy uh, exchanging love letters with each other act, David. But uh, there seems to be some results here. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to highlight this because it actually contradicts something I wrote about a month or so ago. Uh, which was that these photo ops with Trump are a gift to North Korea. Uh, well, I mean, it doesn't so much contradict it as sort of say there's more to this story. Uh, and I think this is really important to know. It's almost as if there are two parallel things happening at once. One is the behavior of Donald Trump, the man himself, as he says nice things about Kim Jong-un, as he gives Kim Jong-un these incredible PR gifts of these moments in the sun with the president of the United States of America, putting this real, you know, backwater repressive country on an equal plane, at least for a day with the world's only superpower that's happening. But what's also happening is there are sanctions that have been imposed that are biting the North Koreans really hard. And there's some interesting parallels here with what's happening with Iran Uh, and both with Iran and North Korea the administration has put into effect sanctions that are biting both of these countries really hard. And so I think it's worth highlighting that some of this stuff appears to be working in the sense that it's putting pressure on these countries. Now, how they respond to that pressure will be very interesting. It's very hard for me to see North Korea agreeing to actual denuclearization because if Korea denuclearizes, then what is it? it it's, it's basically 
um, one of the world's poorest countries with a GDP less of less than Wichita, Kansas, that becomes a charity case, uh, as opposed to right now, it's considered to be one of the more consequential countries in the world simply because it's so dangerous. So it'll go from uh, consequential to charity case overnight if it denuclearizes. And there's a lot of paranoia and fear that without nuclear weapons that South Korea would just gobble it up. So uh, it's hard for me to see them denuclearizing, but it's good to know that they are not looking at the the events of the last 18 to 24 months as a symbol of their triumph, but perhaps maybe scrambling. Again, these are pieces about North Korea. Are They're based on knowledge. I mean, nobody, I would say hardly anybody or in, maybe nobody knows as much about North Korea as, as Nicholas Elberstadt does, but we're all doing a, at least a little bit of guesswork because the coverage of North Korea and access to North Korea is so limited. Well, that's certainly the case. But it also reminds me that every time we think we've accomplished something on the North Korean front, uh, it seems to slip through the fingers. Of course, uh, Clinton with Jimmy Carter thought they had solved the problem back in 1994. They didn't. Uh, The Bush administration tried a bunch of different agreements. Those didn't hold. Uh, The Obama administration didn't have any better luck. And now President Trump's trying something very different. And hopefully it's it's reaping rewards. But uh, we'll see if they can slip out of the economic noose here. It it looks like they they can't, but uh, I'll I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, and the other thing to to realize is some of these regimes like Iran, like North Korea, like China, which we'll talk about here in a minute, that they are they are in the business of trying to create enough instability or create enough uncertainty to sow enough chaos that there's sort of this vague sense of unease that surrounds Trump and then, you know, can contribute perhaps to Trump's defeat. Because one of the things I think some of these hostile powers are counting on is that a Democrat will come in and as part of an effort to, say, normalize relations or ease international pressures or um, ease international tensions may lift some of these sanctions, lift some, reinstate the Iran deal, for example, all as part of an effort to sort of to try to diffuse international tensions in the wake of Trump. And so I think what we're going to enter a very interesting phase because we're going to see some hostile foreign countries take a direct interest in making sure that their sanctions are lifted. And how can they do that? Well, the way they can do it, one way they can do that is by influencing domestic politics. And so we'll we'll see how that works. But I think it's worth highlighting that perhaps Maybe this uh, the narrative that says that the the Trump uh, love letters to Kim Jong Un and the the Trump meetings with Kim Jong Un, as bad as they are, and I still believe they're very bad, are not the whole story. All right. As we ponder what comes next in North Korea and as David foreshadowed in China and Hong Kong. Let's take a nice break and talk about oral health. Um, we're almost to back to school time here, mid-August. In some cases, they're already back to school. I think in m- many parts of your state, David, folks are already back to school. So the easiest way to get back into a routine is to start it up before you have to go back to school. Simplify the morning and evenings now with a simpler electric toothbrush from Quip. Time sonic vibrations cover the basics of every part of your mouth, and it takes just two minutes twice a day. The mirror mount that comes along with the Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. And the lightweight, compact design means you can bring it along with you on those last-minute summer weekend getaways. So enjoy sleeping in, then ease back into the swing of things with a smile. 
Quip has sensitive sonic vibrations for an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums. There's a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you to switch sides and to help you to clean your whole mouth evenly. The brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. They're backed by over 25,000 dental professionals, and they have thousands of verified five-star reviews. Jim Garrity, as I mentioned earlier in the week, got to try this out for the three martini lunch. He loves it, says it's the best toothbrush, bar none, that he's ever had, regular or electric. He loves it, uses it every day, twice a day, takes it on vacation. You can easily take it with you. It's got the nice cover. The cover then mounts to the mirror. They've really thought of everything. The toothpaste even tastes good. They sent me one, too. As I've mentioned, my wife saw it thought it was really cool, so I never actually got to use it, but she loves it, uh, and she has taken it on vacation many times as well. So whether you're at home, on the road, Quip is the way to go. So that's why we love Quip, and that's why uh, we're going to be taking it actually this weekend as well. I'm not going to be here tomorrow, so we're on the road, and she'll be taking the Quip toothbrush as well. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash martini, getquip dot com slash martini. All right, David, just yesterday we talked about how President Trump was not speaking out the way he needs to in support of the pro-democracy demonstrators in Hong Kong, who, as you mentioned, are singing the national anthem of our country, as well as the anthem from Les Mis, waving American flags in the streets. Uh, Clearly, they're looking to us for inspiration as they stare down one of the most powerful communist regimes in the world, and that would be China. And the president on Tuesday basically said the effect of, well, I just hope it works out for everyone. It's a tough deal. Didn't get a lot of praise for that, uh, certainly not on this podcast. And now we're finding out perhaps why he hasn't said more, which is perhaps even more troubling. In fact, I would say it definitely is more troubling. Yesterday afternoon, Eliana Johnson of Politico, formerly of National Review, tweeted this out. Trump aides have been careful speaking about Hong Kong because of a June 18th phone call between Trump and President Xi of China when Trump made an ad hoc commitment to Xi that he would not condemn the Chinese government over a crackdown in Hong Kong. Now, this story has been updated since uh, Wednesday afternoon, and now there's a couple more Trump statements on Twitter about this, but I don't think we're still in the zone we would like to be, David. He said, quote, I know President Xi of China very well. He's a great leader who very much has the respect of his people. He is also a good man in a tough business. I have zero doubt that if President Xi wants to quickly and humanely solve the Hong Kong problem, he can do it. Personal meeting. And then earlier today, he once again encourages a direct meeting between some of the protesters and President Xi. David, great leader who has the respect of his people. That's one way to put it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. uh, Respect or fear. I mean, I know everybody knows that the words of the president are not going to not going to solve the Hong Kong crisis, but they're important nonetheless, because they send a signal beyond the actual words on the tweet or in the statement. They send a signal of American intentions and they send a signal that says that the United States of America will. And no, we're not talking about boots on the ground. No, we're not talking about war. But the United States of America will impose costs on China that China may not want to bear 
if it cracks down in Hong Kong. And it also makes an important moral declaration that this is we stand with those who stand for freedom. I mean, this has been a traditional and it's not always been the case, but this has been a traditional American position, especially when protesters are confronting hostile communist regimes. I mean, that should just virtually go without saying. Uh, And there are things that we can do that can matter to China. So we can restrict access to to, uh, visas for Chinese students, which is a, a measure, college students, which is a measure aimed straight at the Chinese elite. We can break off trade talks. We can engage in targeted sanctions against members of the Chinese elite. And then here's this other thing. Um, We remember, you know, woke capitalism, right? I mean, all of these companies that will try to impose economic sanctions on Indiana or Georgia or Alabama or, you know, North Carolina states that that actually try to protect religious liberty or, or unborn children here at home. Well, a lot of those companies are instrumental in China. They're huge in China. You know, you have Disney hosting glittering premieres for Marvel movies in China. You have um, gleaming new factories producing products for American companies in China. I wonder if China cracks down on Hong Kong, if it sends in the tanks into a free city in Asia, violating international agreements to do so. I wondered if woke capitalism will discover its morality abroad. I'm not necessarily holding my breath, but I do think they should. And that's another form of American leverage because China gets a great deal out of these relationships with these American companies and access to American markets. And for a long time, they've been able to sort of have their cake and eat it too. They've, they've been able to engage in repression at home and what in many areas of China has become increasing repression at home while still having access to all of the goodies of these relationships with these American corporations. And so I I would like to see a unified private and public American front against China that says, if you crack down on Hong Kong, all of these these commercial and corporate and cultural benefits that you've come to expect from this relationship with the United States and the United in these United States companies will be threatened and especially threatened for the Chinese elite who are responsible for the Chinese regime. And I think that there's some at least hope for some leverage there, but it requires leadership. It does, but it also makes me wonder how much the corporations care. 30 years ago, our trade relationship with China was underway, but not certainly as robust as it is now. I don't specifically remember whether there was much of a corporate backlash to Tiananmen Square, David. Do you remember anything specific on that front? Not really. I mean, it was a different. It was a little bit of a different era as well. There are a lot different uh, overall strategic considerations. The Cold War was not yet entirely over. It was a different environment. And also there was a hope in the 1980s that continued commercial engagement would eventually lead to, in, in essence, sort of the decommunization of China. That the, the theory was that totalitarianism could not survive long-term, long-term contact with capitalism. That there was a real and, and an awful lot of smart people believe this as well, that in essence, what you need to do is sort of double down on capitalism in China, because China cannot sustain living as a closed, oppressive society if it's also a robust capitalist society. The capitalism requires a degree of openness and free exchange of ideas that's incompatible with Chinese communism. And so for years, 
this investment into China was also seen not just as lucrative in its own right, but sort of an investment in a different China. It was going to be transforming China from the inside out. And now, you know, 30 years later, what we have learned is that the Chinese are actually quite good at making money while being repressive. <laughs> They're quite good at modernizing their economy while maintaining their surveillance state. There's been a financial dividend for American companies of investing in China, for sure. But that sort of hoped for dividend in fundamental cultural and political transformation has not come about. And so now the, the calculus is different. Now the calculus is these companies are saying, you're saying to these companies, look, you're making money. You know, you're making money. That's what you're supposed to be doing for your shareholders. But, you know, you've also been declaring for a while now, especially in recent years, that making money isn't your highest and only goal. And in fact, you'll take some hits to the bottom line to punish American citizens who vote in ways you don't like. Um, but how big a hit are you willing to take at the bottom line for repression that is far greater than anything you're seeing in the United States. And there isn't, in, in fact, what you're protesting in the United States isn't even repression at all. Where are your morals? Do they really matter? Or is the investment in China just too great and you're gonna look the other way? Let's move on to our final martini, our crazy martini. And August 9th, it's an anniversary for a number of reasons. It's also the day that Nixon resigned 45 years ago. But it's also five years since the uh, events in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, where the police officer shot Michael Brown to death. Prosecutors in Missouri ultimately decided uh, murder charges were not warranted in this case. In March of 2015, the Justice Department agreed in a report that it released on the case. And that's because, according to eyewitnesses, Brown was charging at the officer, and the officer really had no choice but to defend himself with the firearm that ended up taking Michael Brown's life. And so PolitiFact is now reacting to a number of people criticizing senators and presidential candidates Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren for referring to Michael Brown's death as a murder. Kamala Harris tweet, Michael Brown's murder forever changed Ferguson and America. His tragic death sparked a desperately needed conversation and a nationwide movement. We must fight for stronger accountability and racial equity in our justice system. Elizabeth Warren, five years ago, Michael Brown was murdered by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. Michael was unarmed, yet he was shot six times. I stand with activists and organizers who continue the fight for justice for Michael. We must confront systemic racism and police violence head on. So the criticisms over their characterization of his death as a murder, despite the conclusions of law enforcement, had a lot of people complaining. And so PolitiFact, who, of course, is completely unbiased in all political matters, has weighed in on this. <laughs> Their tweet says, quote, new Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren called Michael Brown's killing in Ferguson a murder. Legally, it wasn't. But how much should this word choice matter? And then in the actual <laughs> story, they go through all the facts and eventually get at the very end to this a woman named Joy Leopold, an assistant professor of media communications at Webster University in Missouri who has studied the Brown case and says, quote, uh, she says it's not uncommon for smaller issues, smaller issues such as legal terminology to crop up in controversial cases like this. Her quote, <laughs> focusing on the language opens up the opportunity for some to discredit the conversation about police brutality and the criminal justice system in general. David, can't they just say untrue? Well, you know, Glenn Kessler did in The Washington Post. He fact-checked these same statements and gave them four Pinocchios. I mean, look, this is... This is not hard. 
the Obama DOJ report, which I, I read it uh, again, I wrote a piece about this earlier this week, and I said it plainly, clearly, there's no real way to understand this other than to say that they just flat out lied. They just absolutely lied. The Obama DOJ report is incredibly detailed. It goes through every single important witness's testimony. It crafts the narrative based on the forensic evidence and witness testimony. And we now have a pretty darn good idea about what happened here. And what happened here is that Michael Brown attacked a police officer, started beating him, uh, tried to grab for his gun. And then when the police officer fired around in self-defense inside his, his uh, squad car that grazed Michael Brown, Michael Brown ran away. The police officer left, went after him. Brown yelling for him to stop, yelling for him to stop. Then Brown stops, turns around and charges straight at the officer. There was no hands up, don't shoot. Uh, and, and the DOJ very clearly not only said it wasn't prosecutable, but there was no credible evidence that the police officer, no credible evidence that the police officer had the necessary criminal intent. This isn't close. <laughs> this is not close at all. And in contra that professor, you know, here's what discredits. And, and look, I've written a lot on police shootings that I think are really problematic. And I believe that there is a a use of force issue in American police that needs to be addressed. But you know what hurts the a, a intelligent discussion about this? It's not fact-checking Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. It's Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren lying about what happened. Lies hurt public discourse a lot more than truth. And PolitiFact just clowned itself here. It's not murder, but how much these words really matter? Well, then go out of business, PolitiFact, because <laughs> you, all you do is fact check words. And then here it's like, well, you know, a little word like murder. What does that mean? I mean, that's ridiculous. It's it's like saying, you know, if my son borrows my car, well, it's true he took my car out of the garage. But what if I say he stole it? What? It's just a word. It's just a word. <laughs> I mean, it's so it, it, it really is one of the more hilarious, uh, one of the more hilarious examples of bias that I've seen in this fact checking enterprise. And and again, you know, it's not all mainstream media. Glenn Kessler at The Washington Post absolutely took Harris and Warren to task on this for Pinocchio's. Uh, but PolitiFact, oh, you know, what's in a word? So. <laughs> It's just ridiculous. But um, come, you know, expect more of this from PolitiFact as the as the uh, presidential race heats up, because the narrative is going to be that whoever the Democratic nominee is, is a truthful person running against the liar Donald Trump. And so uh, you're going to see I don't I don't think out of people who have uh, Glenn Kessler has a, a lot of integrity. And I've been really impressed with many of his fact checks. Um, that have that have, in fact, even sometimes destroyed liberal talking points, widely spread liberal talking points. I think he he approaches the job from a position of integrity. I don't have the same view. <laughs> I don't have the same view of some of the folks over at PolitiFact. I think PolitiFact's pants are on fire, David. What do you think? <laughs> I think the pants are indeed on fire. But on fire, what's what's the <laughs> <that> word? <laughs> Might just mean warm. It could be smoldering. I mean, could be yeah. Could be warm. Maybe not warm. Maybe about to be warm. Who, who really can? Who can say? Who can say? 
Oh, David, always a pleasure. You'll actually be here tomorrow, but I won't. Uh, enjoy the time with Greg Knapp, and uh, thanks as always for sitting in for Jim. Thanks so much for having me. David French of National Review in for Jim Garrity today. As mentioned, I'll be out. Greg Knapp will be here with David. And then Jim and I, hopefully, will be back on Monday for the Three Martini Lunch. Tune in for all those episodes. Have a great day.